Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How are you doing? Hey. Hello. Hello. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi. My name is Simon Brooks, and I'm the host of Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts, and folk and fairy tales from our elders, a meeting with professional storytellers. I decided to travel around the country when I could to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling, people who, for their work, travel about telling myths and legends, folk and fairy tales. Each storyteller shares their thoughts on our profession and gems of wisdom, and sometimes a story or two. I'm glad that you're here. This month's storyteller is Eshu Bumpus, who is a remarkable man. His voice is very easy to listen to, rich, enchanting, enigmatic, and coming from a deep, deep storyteller makes it all the better. I've seen Eshu in passing, and when he was telling with Motoko, he gave me some advice, some words of wisdom for one of my stories when I was performing at Timpanogos in 2019. His insights were invaluable to me. Eshu has a way of looking at a story and delving between the lines, prizing open cracks to find a depth that very few other storytellers reach. We sat in his front room chatting while cars and trucks drove by and towards the end, some people from the electrical or phone company began threading cables and banging wires. And you will hear those sounds and bangs. Sorry. Eshu was a wonderful host for my visit, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Eshu Bumpus as much as I did. So I'm sitting here in the home of Eshu Bumpus and Motico, and it's a very fine house. And um, I'm fortunate to bring this interview to you one-on-one. So what was your earliest exposure to stories? Uh... In the form of storytelling, it was when I was about eight years old, mm-hmm. uh, I got brought into this club run by the Boston Children's Service, a few kids from my, you know, from the, the wider neighborhood okay. were involved in this club and invited me, and, and, uh, and this, so this guy, Bob Paradise, was a counselor hired by the city. Mm-hmm. Right to, I, I guess they had other ones around the city who would come and you know go into a neighborhood, and take a few kids, and do stuff with them. And so, um, but he was a storyteller, really, really, uh, really nice person. And uh, so he would come once every couple of weeks or so, and take us sometimes just you know for pizza or bowling or something locally, and sometimes on a trip, you know, somewhere. And uh, and you know he was a storyteller, and so he'd tell us stories from time to time. And and part of this whole being part of this club was getting to go to camp during the summer for almost three weeks. Wow, that's yeah. a good luck. Yeah. It was yeah, and so it was just, uh, down in, in Cohasset on the on the uh, Cape. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we go down there and a nice little countryside thing. Get out of the city. And um, and so we, you know, that was that was my first exposure to a, a person who was really a storyteller, mm-hmm. and he played guitar and he'd sing and he was a big Pete Seeger fan, so you know he would do, you know, like Abby Yo Yo and you know some of that Pete Seeger stuff, 
and uh, he, he didn't have a lot of stories, but you know, we didn't mind hearing the same stories over and over again, you know. Yeah. It's like people with their favorite rock bands, they have their favorite songs that they want to hear, and I think it's the same with stories, too. Sure, sure. So, there's a hole in the bucket. (laughs) I sing that every year, a hole in the bucket. I did that this summer. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, it is. So, did you you spend a lot of time in libraries? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. When, When 1960, that was the year we moved into the projects. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I was a, already a good reader, I was only seven at the time, but right. I was a good reader, okay. so they put me in third grade. And so um, so that meant when that summer came up, by then I was eight, even though I wasn't really old enough to have a library card, because I was going into fourth grade, technically I could get one. Nice. And so, so that summer I got my first library card, and I spent hours and hours in the library. Loved it, loved it. You well, know, so. What kind of books were you drawn to? But but it, the folk tales, folk tales, yeah. fairy tales, myths, legends, tall tales, fables, all that kind of stuff. I loved I loved stories. You know, so I you know I read them. Which do, do you remember any particular stories from your childhood that? that stood out for you, that really popped, as it were? Well, the, you know, there are stories that leave you with questions. Mm-hmm. Like, particularly some of the Anderson stuff. Right. You know? Yeah. Leave you with a lot of questions. So they stick in your mind that way. And then there are stories that just kind of take you off into a fantasy. And, then, you know, so like, and that's, again, Anderson, you know, sometimes... Uh, the the dreamy side of his stories was was really attractive to me. The, you know, the uh, like. Do you know the story of the tinderbox? Yes, it's a fascinating story. Yeah, and on the one hand, you have this. You know, the, the remember the three big dogs that carry. You know, just this this idea of getting carried away through the sky and stuff. You know, always fascinated and kind of attracted me. But then on the other hand, you have stuff like. You know, here's this guy. Like one of one of the themes that he he would deal with a lot was how unfair soldiers were treated, and mm-hmm. they come you know be coming back from the war, and you know, no, there's no work, there's no you know they they don't they didn't get paid, <laughs> you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. This is you know these guys just in in a hard situation. Yeah. But um, but here's this guy traveling back, you know, and uh, meets this old lady on the road. You know, she she gives him an errand. You know, go down into this hole in this tree and find me the tinderbox. It's in a room such and such a place, and you and and uh, you know, and meanwhile, there's this chest filled with copper and silver and gold, and he can fill his pockets with as much of that as he wants. All she wants is the tinderbox. He comes back for her to drop the rope to let him back out, and she wants the tinderbox first. He said, "No, let me out first. Yeah. <laughs> and not, and then when when he finally gets out, he wants to know why she wanted the tinderbox so bad. He's got pockets full of gold, but what's about this tinderbox? He ends up killing her. But she's a witch. That's how it somehow justifies, you know, yeah. that he 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 murders. And you don't really, it's it's really not easy to see 
this guy become a, this murderer, go on to have the happy life at the end of the story, be the hero of the story. Yeah. With that in the background, you know what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. so those kind of stories just leave you with, the, you know, some uncomfortable stuff. Yeah. But, but there's parts of the story that also take you off into these fantasies that are just really kind of compelling. Right. You know, so it's just, you know, right. it was always interesting reading those stories and, and sometimes you could find an adult you could talk to about it, but <laughs> sometimes you couldn't. You know? Right, yeah. You just have to kind of deal with it. Yes, I, I sometimes feel that Anderson also spun his stuff off other other story, yeah, other folk yeah. tales. You know, like the story of Aladdin, which is very yeah. similar to, tin, yeah. to Tinderbox in some yeah. ways. Yeah. Certainly, the, right. the coming out of the right. cave and all that. And again, right. he he ends up killing the magician in that story. Yeah, the relationship was different, though. It was. Yeah. You when we were when we were texting each other, emailing each other, you mentioned some of the the influences of, of story of storytellers in, in your at the beginning. You talked about Brother Blue and Ruth, oh, yeah. Ruth Bill and yeah. Danny Kay and Amos yeah. to two, Tutuola, uh, well, and others. Yeah, well, um, Danny Kay was another one. Now, Danny Kay actually played Hans Christian Andersen in the mm -hmm. movie part, but Danny Kay was one. There were certain people that that were really interesting when I was a kid that I really liked as a kid uh, because you could see that they really liked kids. Right. You know what I mean? And Danny Kaye was one of those. I think so. Yeah. That, you know, he was a guy, you know, popular movie star and performer and this, that, but he really liked kids. And so he put himself in these positions that other people wouldn't bother with, you know, like playing Hans Christian Andersen and Pied Piper and, you know, these different things right. that he did. And one of the things that he did was he actually made an album of folk tales from around the world in the 60s. You know, who was doing that in the 60s, you know? Um, but I really Michael you know, Redgrave <laughs> yeah I don't know yeah, he, yeah, he did. There, there weren't many people doing there that weren't. kind of thing no there weren't you know. um, but um, Oscar Brown Jr. was another one that was telling stories and, you know, so in the I, 60s so when you mentioned him I went to look him up and I saw that he was a singer songwriter playwright mm -hmm. poet civil rights activist and mm -hmm. actor which is you know Jack of all trades, but I was, I was, as I was driving up here, I told you I was listening to his album Sin and Soul. Yeah, and there's some really funny songs in there, but there are also some really poignant, poignant ones, yeah. like the one about slavery, yeah. you know, the auction. Yeah. And that was, you know, he's a brilliant poet. Oh my gosh, yeah. coming off the back of some of the funny stuff, and then suddenly right. you throw that, that's, that's a mm -hmm. curveball. But mm -hmm. it was in, in the you know, two, three minutes of that track. He really gets his point across. Mm -hmm. So, did he do much writing for children? Oscar Brown Jr. Yeah, he was a poet. He did a lot of writing. He was constantly, you know, writing and singing and, and telling stories. But um, it wasn't aimed at children per se. Okay. So, when did you discover him? What what drew you to him? Uh, well, there were a couple of things that were popular, you know, when I was a kid, like. Um, Straight up and fly right. right. Um, the um, signifying monkey. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that was one of his things. Oh, signifying monkey, gonna stay up in your tree. 
You're always lying and signifying, but you better not monkey with me, you know. Um, so, it's, you know, that stuff became popular. You know? And uh, so that's, that's how you find out about him. Nice. And what kind of influence, I mean, because you, you use song in your, in your performance work, in your storytelling. Yeah. And people like Oscar Brown Jr. Exactly. Play there. Exactly, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. When did you decide that you wanted to do poetry, story, song? Um, you know, it's one of those things that's always in you, you know what I mean? So uh, I remember I was probably about 18 or so when I met Brother Blue. Um, and uh, I had actually, before I met him, uh, he used to have a radio sh show. Saturday morning radio show, yeah, back around six seventy seventy one, huh. so uh, in Cambridge, right, and uh, and he would tell stories, you know, on the radio on Saturday mornings, and I used to love that show. I used to listen to him all the time, you know, and he, you know, he brother blue, he'd be, yeah. you know, doing his thing, but it's just really uh, thoughtful, you know what I mean? Just very thoughtful, and. Uh, yeah, even when he's goofing around, so, he would, yeah, right. He would exactly. be, you know, there'd be. I, I only met him a few times, yeah, and I, I, I really appreciated what he did. Yeah, but he, he, I'll be honest with you, he kind of made me a little bit uncomfortable mm. sometimes. Mm. But he was absolutely brilliant. He was a genius at what mm -hmm. he did, mm -hmm. and I don't think he. I mean, I, I don't, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way. I don't think he thought about much about what he did he just did it it was like innate it was inside him yeah, yeah. Well, he was, what you he saw was more was what himself he, yeah. than most people could ever be yeah I think so you I know? Think and right. that, that's just something to admire you know um, he was that way all the time yeah all the time you know whether you're sitting in his living room or whether you're walking down the street or whether you you know at a performance he was the exact same way all the time yeah and uh and Ruth, he, he was like a kite, and Ruth was the, the exactly. rock tied at the end exactly. of the kite, and so they didn't fly away. Exactly. Yeah, I love Ruth, she's a wonderful woman. Yeah, you're both beautiful people. Yeah, very much so. So, when did you start working with kids? So, uh, I knew I liked working with kids when I was a kid because when I was about 11 or 12, uh, you know, just starting, just like sixth grade, seventh grade, you know, eighth grade, maybe, around that age. Um, my church decided to have a, a remedial program, you know, because kids were having trouble with school, you know, and they wanted to do something. And so... Um, and this is in Boston, right? This is in Boston, in Roxbury. And... Uh, so me and my best friend decided to help, you know, we were going to take classes, teach classes, and we had they, they had some second graders they wanted us to take, and, and uh, my friend was a good writer and, you know, that type of thing, so he was going to take the kids that wanted to do history and English, they needed help in those areas, and I wanted to do math, and, but something struck me, and I don't know to this day, I don't know what exactly made me think this way, but... We're standing in this room with a few adults trying to figure out, you know, how to set things up. And, and one of the women said something about, you know, we got a couple of kids that are just, 
you know, getting into trouble all the time. And I said, I said, give me all the bad kids. Now, I was only a kid myself. And I don't know where the confidence came from. I said, give me all the bad kids. I, I just knew I could handle it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, so they gave me this class of, you know, four or five kids that really, you know, they were having trouble in school. And some, some of them were getting into trouble. And uh, it turned out one of them, you know, the, the kid needed glasses and the teacher kept sitting them in the back of the class. Oh, you know, I mean, it's just different things like yeah. that, that, you know, that we discovered within a couple of weeks. And, and within a couple of months, I had those second graders doing fourth grade math. Nice. You know, <laughs> and we were just having a good time. You yeah. Know? But, um, but I, you know, I knew there was something in me that, you know, that wanted to, to do that type of thing even then, you know. But it wasn't until the mid-70s when I came up here that uh, um, I started, you know, working with kids on a regular basis. I, I, there was a school, alternative school, uh, over at the School of Ed in UMass called Che Lumumba School. Okay. And, uh, and so I taught there and um, started doing a lot of you know, storytelling and different things like that and, and writing stories with the kids, taking their stories and making them into plays. And we used to use them as fundraisers for the school and stuff, you know. Nice. And uh, then, then, then it was something that I knew was gonna, you know, be, I was gonna be doing for, you know, for the duration. I, I uh, like, if you look here, you see that? Yeah. That's what I was doing in the 70s. That, oh. was, that was my last piece that I, you know, really... You painted that? Yeah, it's pastels. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. So we're looking at... That was from 1976. ...of this woman with a child. Yeah. And it's... It's, it's from South... It's, they're, they're in South Africa and... Uh, well, actually, Namibia. In the desert of Namibia, this Khoisan people. And it's a beautiful picture. I had no idea that you'd done that. I didn't know that you did yeah, art. That's that's what I was doing back then. So were you... A, when I came up here, I came. I was doing art as and a, music. You, so you were a teacher? So I became a teacher uh, with Che Lumumba School. And uh, it was a small school, you know, K through six, you know, one-room class kind of thing. Lot, you know, they'd split the kids up for certain things, but for a lot of things we had them all together in one class. And... Uh, so I, originally, when they hired me, I was partnered with uh, with this woman who's now a professor up here somewhere, um, Maria Wexler. She's a, um, an activist, and and we were hired as a team to do political education in the afternoons, and um, and that's where I started you know, writing the stories with kids and different things like that. And and when we started doing the plays, the parents loved it so much they they decided to have a theater arts class. And I would take the kids' history lessons from the morning and write stories with them and turn them into plays. And we performed them, you know. And uh, so, it, but I, I really became absorbed in just working with kids. And, and, and so I... I wasn't able to continue my art at the same time because both are so time consuming, mostly yeah. so all consuming. 
so one had to give. So, um, do you still do do a little bit of? Uh, it's something I hope to get back to. Yeah, you know, but I. Well, that's I, good. You know, that's that's a really good piece. Thank you. Thank you. So you you said in, in again in, in the emails that you that you had an after school program as well. Right. So then, uh, you know, one of the hazards of being in a college town is that the community is very transient. You know, after a while, everybody split off in different directions. So Chayla Mumba School it became an after school program, and we managed to keep it alive that way for a few years. But eventually, oh, so it's the so, same school. It just no, it's just two different things. So. So um, I had to get a job in the meantime right. while we're trying to maintain that. So I got hired as the director of this after-school program. It was just a, it was a new thing at the time. It was 1980, and it was uh, there were five schools, five elementary schools in Amherst, and uh, there was only one other after-school program at Marks Meadow School, and I was doing the one at Fort River School, and then at the time because that was those were the only programs. We had kids from Crocker Farm and Wildwood and Common School all coming to my after-school program oh, wow. at Fort River as well until they eventually got their own after-school programs that took a couple of years. But yeah, so we had that and then uh, then we had to do something for the summer. So we started a program called Summer Theater Arts and we would run a day camp basically, you know, have the kids from you know 8.30 or 9 in the morning until you know, 4 or 5 in the in the afternoon, and um, we would do it in two or three week sessions. And each session, we would base it on a different part of the world. And so, so like say, if we had a session based on Asia, then I would go and I would just learn a bunch of stories from Asia, and I would tell them to the kids. And not each age group, there usually is three age groups, sometimes two, they would you know pick what story they liked the best, and we'd write a script from it, and the kids would make their costumes, and and the art teacher would you know, have them make, you know, help them paint backdrops, and and we, you know, at the end of that two or three week period, we'd have a big performance, and the parents would bring potluck, and and that's what we ran that for several years. Every that's summer. cool. And then um, was the potluck supposed to be part of the cultural? Were they supposed to be? It, it didn't have to be. No, it didn't have to be. It didn't have to be because then then you. Yeah, you know, as, as <laughs> it gets more and more, more and more involved. But but you know, just just to, you know, to have a gathering and everybody you know contribute to it. So you must have worked up a good repertoire. Yeah, doing yeah, that and a yeah. very varied one as well. Yeah. If you're doing all these different cultures, yeah. how hard? I mean, you said this was in the the early the early eighties, right? Yeah, and the internet wasn't. The oh no! Books, that it is. So you were going and finding these in, in, in books, in, in books and libraries. In books are talking to people. So um, yeah, uh, basically just a lot of reading. Yeah. Mm. Did you so, see other storytellers? When was the first? Who was the first storyteller you saw, other than Mr. Valentine? Uh, Paradise. Paradise. Sorry. Um, I knew that was wrong, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Bob Paradise. In the early eighties. Uh, Joe J. O'Callaghan came to um, Amherst College once. Um, Tim Van Eggman was already telling stories. Uh, Davis Bates 
uh, we went to Hampshire College together. So I knew Davis was into it. I didn't meet John Puccino until the mid-80s. Um, but, um, and, and I had a friend from South Africa who actually lived with Tim Van Egmond for a while. And he was, he was a great storyteller and poet. Um, he's back in South Africa now teaching. Did you learn from these people? Of course, yeah. yeah. What do you think was the, uh, the biggest lesson that you got from them? Like what did Tim, what did you get from Tim? What did you get from um, Davis? And Some just inspiration. You know, uh, the, the interesting thing with Davis was when we were in, in the 70s, when we were at Hampshire College, he already knew he wanted to be a storyteller. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, I was, it was fascinating to me. I didn't, you know, not that many people were thinking in those terms back then, but uh, he already knew he wanted to be a storyteller. He, I used to run a speakers and artists program at Hampshire, and... Uh, so he got me to hire um, a medicine story. He was a great storyteller, Native American teller. Yeah. And uh, we got to got to hear him. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of good inspiration. That's cool. Yeah. So when you were emailing me, when we were emailing back and forth, you said that you, when you found or discovered African stories and songs, it opened a world for you. Can you expand on that? Well, my youngest brother John used to be a great dancer. Uh-huh. And uh, so he was, you know, dancing in Boston. They had a program uh, where they actually did uh, they actually did a, a performance based on the Palm Wine Drinkard. I don't know that. That's a, a book by Amos Tutuola. Okay. It's kind of a fantasy, mystical African fantasy, I guess you might call it. Okay. Something like that. Is but this a, just, a short story or a... You know, it's a short novel. Okay. He, he, he had, uh, he followed that one with one called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. And just really, uh, just a really interesting, just unique style of writing and, and storytelling mm -hmm. that uh, just be kind of beautiful, kind of poetic and mysterious, and, you know. And uh, so I loved his stuff, and that was um, something that I just hadn't, you know, when I when when I went to see John's, you know, performance and stuff, and then I I got the book and I read it, and I was like, wow, I just loved it, and um, you know, the, it something about African music, you know, like people like Miriam Makeba, you know, people like those always resonated with me anyway, you know. And so um, this really resonated when I read Palm Wine Drinker. Just that had a, I, it's very hard for me to describe, the, the, but just the use of language and the, yeah. And so um, by then, though, you know, um, I started finding more African folk tales and, and that type. Of, I mean, I I. I knew about Anansi, and I'd seen a, you know a couple of Anansi stories, but but um, I didn't at the time have any idea of how many Anansi stories there were. Oh, there are thousands, right, of them. right. Um, 
but a lot of that stuff just you know in in 64 yeah you know or 63 or 62 you weren't finding that stuff in the in the library in Boston you know you might find it somewhere but not there yeah um so I, you know once I started finding the stuff I started I said you know I started really seeking it out and uh that must have been hard back then trying to find those stories well those sources it's not like it is now where everything is you know a lot more accessible yeah but you know you could find things but but the thing about going to college you know I was a little older when I went to college in my mid-twenties when I went to uh, Hampshire College but um but the thing about going to college is then you start meeting people from those places right and that's you know that's a whole different ball game you know so you can you know that really just opens up so much you know that's primary source then yeah not tainted by an editor well you know just just another level of richness yeah because you have the voice oh right right Mm -hmm. that's so cool yeah so what other other cultures did did you open up to when you were at college or was it mainly African um well the, the African stuff is personal Right, but all, all the stuff is meaningful. Yeah, you know. So, so um, I was just wondering if there's another. You know, f- so for me, the first. You know, when I was a kid, I used to love Japanese culture. Oh, you did? Yeah, because we had a museum called the um, Gardner Museum. Right. I used to love that place. You know. Is about a I was Gardner one of those museum. kids that would go. Yeah, I was one of those kids that would go to the museum by himself and spend hours, and they always had great Japanese stuff. Yeah, that's. I mean, every surface that you look at, yeah. whether it's like an exhibit stand or the ceiling, it's yeah. there's art yeah. everywhere yeah. in that in that museum. Yeah. It's a phenomenal place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so that's interesting that you now have this partnership with yeah, just Multico. The way things work. Yeah. Mm. Um. So going back to this whole thing of of young people, um, you mentioned technique for organized analysis and distillation of stories to facilitate the story rhyming process well I was talking specifically about rhyming stories okay because that's a whole another thing I mean I've always had a facility with rhyming okay you know and I've always enjoyed it because that was part of our growing up you know I mean even you know we used to uh, have what's called ranking sessions some people call it playing the dozens Okay. You know, just making fun of each other. Oh. You know, but if you could, <laughs> but if you could rhyme it, see, then you really take off. You oh, know? really? <laughs> so, so um, you know, yeah, we just rhyming was all, always part of our culture, as you know, as as kids, even you know, just rhyming. Whether it's the, I used to love to listen to the, you know, the girls outside my window with the jump rope. Oh, right, you know? right, yeah. I used to love the sound of that. You know, just just. Um, it's just all the skipping just, songs, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's always been a part of who you are. Yeah. So, um, so it was somewhere along the line. Uh, the, once at college, my girlfriend at college had to do some rhyming of a story, um, and I helped her with that. 
uh, for some class she was doing. And then later, uh, and I always liked, like I said, Oxford Brown Jr. He would take stories and make them into rhymes and sing them or, you know, they didn't always have to be songs. Sometimes they just poet, poet recited to music. Sometimes it was actual songs. But um, back around 94, maybe, somewhere around in 95, um, Motoko, you know, they don't rhyme in Japanese. Okay. That's why the poems are haiku, you know. So right. They go by syllables. They don't go by rhymes. They don't rhyme, you know. So um, so she wanted to rhyme, uh, and that was something I was good at. So I said, I'll take the star, rhyme it for you. She, I, I'm not sure I, what the impetus was at the moment for this particular story. Um, this is when you first met? Is this no, we had met, but this is when, when she first was an earlier part of her storytelling career. She mm-hmm. had been telling stories for a couple, it was probably 94, 95. She'd been telling stories for a couple of years. Um, but um, she asked me to rhyme this story, and so I did. And and it reminded me how much I liked that. So I started wanting to rhyme more stories. And there was one story, it's really interesting the way this came about. Sarah DeBeer, you know Sarah? Yeah. Sarah DeBeer, um, I was staying at the house one day because I was doing some storytelling down there. And she said, I've got this thing I really want you to hear, right? And it was a, um, a little video in Italian, this little Italian cartoon mm-hmm. of the story of Lion in Love. Oh, right. And it was kind of a silly version of it. And um, and I hadn't thought about that story for decades. And and the, the thing was, it conjured up all these old memories that, you know, that I hadn't thought about for many, many years, um, since, since the early 60s. Wow. And um, I had read that story, and I remember being very disturbed by it and trying to talk to my brother Bobby about it. And... Um, and so, uh, you know, when I started rhyming stories, that's that was one I really wanted to to work on was lying in love. You know the story? Yeah, it's a dark story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's it's a, it's it's sad and it's dark and it's yeah. it, there's a lot of depth to that story. There's a lot to that story, and for you know, for a little boy reading it, yeah, it leaves a whole lot. You know, some of those things, you know. Like I said, sometimes you could find somebody to talk to, and sometimes you couldn't, and it would just kind of stay in there. Yeah. And you didn't know what to do with it, you know? But that was one of those stories that really just, yeah. you know. My, it, my equivalent is Gellert, the story of, of Beth Gellert, the, the faithful hound. Do you, do you, it's, a story, it's a story from Wales about um, Prince Llewellyn, yeah. um, who's given this pup, and he grows up with it. and. Right he meets this woman and marries her and, and they have this newborn baby and they go out hunting and and Gallop the hound will always go with the hunt right. with, with Prince Llewellyn and Gallop turned back and the prince like where's Gallop gone oh he turned back a, a while ago and he's like well, something must be wrong 
because he never leaves my sight right. and he goes back to the hunting lodge and the dog comes out wagging his tail face covered in blood and he, his first reaction is that the dog's killed my baby and they they see the crib is turned over and there's blood on the floor right. and he thrusts the sword in the side of the dog and as the dog howls the sound of a crying baby is heard yeah. and then they pull these tapestries that have been pulled down off, off the walls and they find the, the baby's fine okay, but they also find a wolf right. that, that Gellert had slayed right. but it's too late to save him and that yeah. was that was that type of story with me right. in, in the, the lion story he sacrifices himself piece by piece by right. piece by and he piece he gave up too much of himself to try to belong yeah yeah, yeah so it's a sad horrible story yeah I mean horrible in, in the fact that that one feels that one has to do that sometimes and sometimes we do feel that we have to do that yeah and it's an incredible lesson that I mean it's a great and it's, that's on one of your CDs on your yeah. first first CD right yeah that's a great story yeah those stories they sit with you don't they yeah <laughs> Yeah. So the rhyming process, though, is really interesting. So, um, like I said, you have to distill the story. You have to look at the story as a whole thing and really try to get at the heart of what the story is about before you can build it back up into the rhyme that you want to use, you know? I get and it's just a really fascinating process, you know. And the, the it's it's something that um, that I love doing so much. I want to be able to show other people how to do it, but I got to really, you know, it's it's so intuitive that it's hard to break it down, you know. It's hard to break it down. Because you do like digging deep into stories. Yeah. I mean, you go way deep. I mean, I thought that I went fairly deep in my stories, but then you heard me at Timpanogos and, and you sat me down and we had a chat and, and you, we were talking about the, the story, the story of the story untold and the song uh-huh. unsung. And we we're talking about how it comes from India and how this woman, you know, I the things I didn't bring out of that story were the things that this woman had this story and had this song but didn't sing them but I didn't address yeah, why right. she didn't yeah. sing them yeah. and that's you know that never really occurred to me because you know I know that there are people that don't sing and they don't dance because sure. they just don't want to but I never, right. I never really thought about well, why why is that right. and then all of a sudden you know you look at, at the culture where the story comes from which is the you know Indian continent and it's it's like okay so maybe she feels trapped and then it becomes a whole nother story exactly and it yeah. gains a whole nother level of depth and you really like to go deep on your stories do you want to talk about that? Um, that's been a process that um, has really been good to, you know having a partner like Motoko you know to work with because it's in the dialogue, you know, that you really say, wait a minute, you know, we can go deeper than that. We can, you know, come at that from another angle. We can look at it another way, you know. So we've had some really good discussions, and, you know, and she and I talked about that story too, you know. 
But, um, yeah, it's, it's funny, you know. Uh, one of the things that I try to, make people aware of, particularly young people, is that you can basically take any story and make it say anything. Right. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely, yeah. There's a facility there that, that you have if you just open your mind to it and just, you know. The news does it every night. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> but let's not go there. <laughs> yeah. But um, the funny thing with storytelling is... Um, People come at it from so many different angles, you know. So I remember back around 90, you know, 89, uh, there was suddenly a lot of money in trying to get kids not to smoke. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you had, you know, jugglers and, you know, different kinds of, you know, people that really weren't making any money, you know, coming into storytelling, you know, or calling themselves storytellers, you know, say, I can, I can, you know, do a thing on juggling to quit smoking, or I can do a thing, you know, that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah. And I don't begrudge it, but I'm just saying it's like people are coming at it from, for many different reasons and from different angles. You know, when I tell stories to kids, it's because I want those kids to know those stories. Yeah. And because I want to open up uh, a, a, a line of communication with those kids about the way we think about certain things, you know, and um, and it's not for the money, right? You know, I take the money because I have to eat. Yes, <laughs> you know, but it's not for the money, right? Um, and it's not for entertainment. And I'm not particularly interested in being entertainment. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Some people are doing it for entertainment, and yeah, and so their approach is going to be different. Yes, you know. Um, so uh, you know, there's a I see some storytellers, and there's a sense of, isn't this fun? Right. You know, kind of, and that's all well and good, but you're only going to get so much out of that story. Yes. You know, and you're only going to bother to take the story so far. In fact, you know, uh, you know, you can find the story in the book, and you know, one person takes the story, and it's almost exactly the way it was in the book. Yes. Another person takes the story, and it's, you know, the name is changed to the kid down the street, and uh, you know, the setting is changed to the neighborhood. But the story's still the same story. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, you know, so people are doing different things with the stories, but um, a lot more could be done. Yeah. Yeah. A lot more can be done in terms of looking at the story and saying what it is you need to say. Right. You know, the story doesn't need to say it. You need to say it. So when I I was talking with... When I was talking with Ed Stoner um, last weekend... He, he's not a big fan of personal stories. I mean, he mm. knows that there are people who are really good at it. Right. Um, he tells stories so that people can check out of their daily lives and and 
find some relief mm-hmm. and that's a great thing yeah. and to some degree I, I do the same thing too right I want to entertain the audience that I've mm-hmm. got there and I want to talk about these issues mm-hmm. that are prevalent today as they were back then right you know so there's this, this story of Jack John mm-hmm. that I've, I've started telling recently um, it's the original version is called Foolish John. It's it's um, the English version is called Foolish John. There's a there's a southern version of it called Opossumus or something like that. It's about this this possum that goes to visit its aunt mm-hmm. and the butter on the head and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So F- Foolish John is a very similar story. And you know when I was working on this story, they, you know he's he's not really foolish. He's just literal, mm-hmm. right? And Calling him foolish or lazy is is not right. This is a kid who is probably on the spectrum, mm-hmm. you know. And and you look at some of these stories. I was reading an article about um, the Iliad and how Homer is describing post traumatic stress disorder. Mm. You know, the the soldier's symptoms sure. are post. You know, and you know, you look at these these stories of these foolish people that aren't really foolish they just have a very particular way of acting and it's like well these 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 are describing kids that, or people that might be on, on the, the autism spectrum in some way and so by telling these stories you're, in, you're making these kids feel more included right talk about Rumpelstiltskin you're looking at you know and I think we talked about this at, at um, Timpanogos as well there's that whole thing of like putting a girl up in a tower like putting, mm. and putting her up on a pedestal you know this you know she's unattainable and yet she's she is attainable because the prince gets her and and it's about teen pregnancy and it's about being a single mother for a certain amount of time although that's not addressed in the story that much but it, you know she's looking after these kids for a year before the prince finds her and his eyesight's returned you know so there's all these cultural uh, it's Rapunzel yeah Rapunzel what did I call her well, you were mixing the two stories. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So, yeah, so Rapunzel, it, you know, it's... um. Even though these stories are written hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, we're having the same issues today. Mm-hmm. And I think telling these stories to kids allows them to understand, A, that it's been going on for a lot longer than they ever imagined. It's not a, like a modern phenomenon. Mm. And that... You know, other people have that issue too because they're writing stories about it. Well, they've created stories about it, mm-hmm. and I think that's for me that's really important about folk tales, and that's why I, you know that's why I'm doing this podcast to talking to elders in my community like yourself because I think it's really important that that kids hear these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of value in those stories, and I think that. There's even more value in getting kids to create their own versions of the stories. I, you know, that's that's one of the things that I love to do. With it, is um, so. So, what does that do for the kids when they when they change when they create their own versions of the stories? Well, my my brother used to always like to say, "Teaching is the half of learning." You know. Um, One of the things I, I like to do with, uh, particularly with middle school kids, mm-hmm. is I give them a list 
a long list. You can download a list easily of of um, positive character traits, right? Right. You can have maybe four columns on a full page, you know, just positive character traits. And I hand it, hand it to each of them. I say, just circle the ones that apply to you. You know, kind, honest, clever, you know, hardworking, whatever. Just circle all the ones that apply to you. And then decide what you want your story to teach. You know? Uh, I like that. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, the thing is, these are important things to look at. Yeah. To look at how much there is that's great about you. Because all the time we're being told we're not good enough. Yeah. Um, so, so let's look at that stuff, but also realize not only do you understand the value of it, you can teach it to somebody younger than you. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. And then for a middle school kid, they need that. Yeah. They really need that. And for the, and the kids that look up to them, those second and third graders, they need that. Yeah. They need to hear that stuff from them, that you should be honest. It's, you know you're gonna, the teacher's going to tell you that. But they don't listen but, to the But the sixth grade kid is going to tell you that. Yeah. And it's going to mean more. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And that's, that's you know, the folk tales are valuable for doing that kind of thing. It's a vehicle. It's because it's, it's already in the design. It's designed for communication across generations. Yeah. That's what the folk tale is. You know? I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I love doing these interviews. There's always these little treasures like that yeah. that pop out. I love it. Anyway, um, how do you pick a story? When, when you're going through anthologies or when you're listening to a storytelling and you, and you come across a story that you like and you decide, I want to pick that, That's, I want to tell that story. What, what, what does that story... Sometimes have? it's the rhythm of the language or the rhythm of the, how the characters interact. Or the, sometimes it's, you know, it's that kind of music. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's actual music. Sometimes it's, you know, there's a song in the story that's co- so compelling that the rest of the story is going to have to fit <laughs> to, yeah. to make that song work because it's just a good song. Um, you know, but it's, you know, it, music in one way or another is, is often involved. Um, sometimes it's, you know, it's just a particular character, you know, that's just, you know, like a Nancy or something. The character's just so much fun that you want to just build stuff around it. And and if you know you'd get you've got something to work with there already, you just kind of make it your own. Um, I remember reading the story uh, Anansi and Miss Flame. I had never heard that story, and uh, and I like it when I find Anansi stories that nobody else tells. You know, I don't I don't usually mess with the ones that other people tell, but um, but Anansi and Miss Flame is a great story. And it's just, and it's so Anansi, it's so, you know, so perfectly him, you know. Um, he falls in love with a flame, you know, and she's pretty. Yeah. <laughs> you know? He invites her to his house. Doesn't go so well. No, it doesn't go so well at all, you know. Um, <laughs> but she can cook. <laughs> you know, just like things like that, you know, you just got you, you just got to do something with it. Yeah, I found one of those recently. Um, it's an Nancy story from, from Antigua mm-hmm. about the honey tree. Have you heard that one? No. You haven't? I don't know. Oh, it's a great... 
So, um, yeah, so I use this story as, as a way to emphasize the fact that, you know, Anansi comes originally from Ghana in Africa. Mm-hmm. And that why are these stories in Jamaica and Antigua and all right. these other places? Right. Because of the slave trade, mm-hmm. right? And so it's a great way to explain that to the kids. You know, when these when these people were stolen from their countries, taken against their will to these other places, these stories came with them. Mm-hmm. So when Anansi was visiting Antigua, blah blah blah, he comes across this honey tree, and he's never seen one before. So mm-hmm. he goes up to this honey tree, sucks on it, and he's sucking and sucking and sucking and sucking. And he goes to step away, and it's stuck to his face. And he says, "Honey tree, let me go." And the honey tree says, "My name is not Honey tree. My name is Wheelam." Uh-huh, okay. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of those where the, um, like the the witcher's name is five. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. he sets everybody else to say the witch's name. And, yeah. Yeah. And there's the one with the sweet potatoes that I like when you get. He hasn't got any food to to swap at the market. I can't remember mm-hmm. that one. I want to tell that story. I like that story. Anyway, so once you've picked a story, where where do you go from there? And does it depend on the story? Of course it depends on the story, but um, the first question for me is, is there going to be a song? Okay. You know, if there's going to be a song, then that's the focus, and the story builds around where the song is. If there's, if there's, you know, if there's not going to be a song, then I have a whole other reason for telling the story, you know, so. And is that when you start to dig deep to find out? Right. Right, especially if it's not going to have a song in it. I've got to have some other thing going on that I'm trying to get to. Right. You know, you know, like, for example, uh, Friday I was, I, I had assemblies of sixth graders. So, um, so I had this one story that I wanted to start with. The people in uh, northern Nigeria, the Hausa people, have a tradition of, of palaver stories and the the point of a palaver story is that it's not an entertainment story the purpose of the story generally ends with a question okay you know um so it's like you know like dilemma tales they like the dilemma tales a lot they fit into that category the idea is the story uh, the purpose of the story is to begin a community discussion. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so this particular story I tell them is this uh, son of the chief was a bully. He was really very mean and greedy and so on. And so everybody was afraid that if anything happened to the chief, you know, they were going to be stuck with him. And of course, one day the chief dies, and now this guy's the, the the new chief, right? And he's just cruel and he's just selfish and he's just greedy and and uh, so there's this wise woman, this old woman who's so old that nobody's ever seen her young, you know, who sits there in the middle of the uh, village in front of this ancient tree, and everybody comes to her for advice, even the chiefs. Mm-hmm. And so he's supposed to go to her for advice, but he doesn't want to hear it, so he t- kicks her out of town and has the tree cut down. Ooh, okay. This tree that had stood there for as long as anyone could remember. And so, um, one day, he wakes up in the morning with a tree growing out of the top of his head. 
<laughs> Nobody's ever heard of such a thing. They don't know what to do. Yeah. You know, he's got to go to the old woman. Ooh. You got to go find the old woman, <laughs> right? The old woman knows what to do. She's seen it before a long time ago. So she makes mixes up this thick, foul-smelling stuff and tells him he's got to drink that, right, and go to sleep. And when he wakes up, the tree will be gone. But then she's got to, he's got to bring her three cows in payment. He goes home and he drinks this nasty stuff and goes to sleep, wakes up, no tree, but he doesn't want to bring her the three cows. A lot of money. Well, you know, you know he's, he doesn't want to give up anything. He's greedy. Yeah. She said, you're making a mistake, but he doesn't pay any money. He goes back to his old ways until finally one day, of course, the tree grows back. Now he's got to go back to the old woman, but now he's pissed off. He goes back down into the village and there she is, sitting right there in the center of the town. All the people are gathered around. And here he comes with a sword in his hand. She said, you're making a mistake. He said, no, I'm not. You're making a mistake. And he raises that sword. The moment his hand is up there, it opens. And the sword falls. And his fingers stretch out. And his feet take root. Next thing you know, there's this huge tree standing there. She sits down right in front of that tree, where she always sat before. And she tells the people, look, now you don't have a leader. What are you going to do? Are you going to choose another chief? Are you going to find some other way to govern yourselves? The story leaves you three questions. I tell them, look, what do you think they did? What do you think they should do? And what would you do? And we answer those questions, and we talk about it. Wow. And what we eventually come to is, well, what qualities would you look for in a leader? Yeah. What qualities would you expect? What qualities do you need to cultivate in yourself if you're going to be a leader? Those are, that's, those are deep questions. Yeah, yeah. Especially for middle school kids. For sixth graders, you know, and yeah. they say, well, look, you know, you guys are going to be making these decisions soon. You're actually going to be deciding who's the mayor and who's the... You have to think about that. Wow. But a story like that, I don't have a song. Right. But it, yeah. That's, that's, that's so good. So we kind of talked a little bit about the importance of spreading folk tales. A little bit. Um, now, what, what do you... How, how do you feel about misappropriation and where... Where can you retell a story from another culture? Uh, yeah. And where does it become misappropriation? And you can say, I'm not going to answer that because it's... You know, it's it's an awful question that we have to um, expect. There are certain cultures that um, don't want their stories told by people that aren't in that culture. Mm-hmm. And they have every right. Um, to keep the stories to themselves, or to only be the ones to tell those stories, or whatever. I don't, you know, I don't have any objection to that. Mm-hmm. That's not my business. Right. Um, there are a lot of stories out there that um, I think it's good to, um, particularly when you're telling stories to children, to let them know where those stories come from. Right. You know, sometimes you might not even be that accurate. 
you do the best you can. Right. You know, so so like you you're telling a story from the Arabian Nights, but you realize, you know, that actually Aladdin comes from China and was never right. part of the original Thousand exactly. and One stories, or you know that type of thing. You, right. You'd be as as accurate as you can. It's just another topic of discussion. But um, I, I don't think we need story police. Yeah. Personally, I just I don't see the point in that. Um, you know, this I'm um, I'm not trying to compete with someone. You know. For. You know I. I think most of that discussion is ridiculous. Okay. Personally, I think most of it's ridiculous. There, there are certain, like I said, certain, particularly some Native American uh, tellers and, and cultures that, you know, they don't want people misappropriating the stuff because they don't want people messing it up for one thing. Right. You know, and this is, goes back to the whole issue of, of the depth of the story. Right. You know, sometimes people are telling stories and they have no idea what that story is really about. Yeah. You know, and that's frustrating, but that's not because. Uh, they're misappropriating the story so much is because they just didn't understand the story in the first place. Right. You know? Um, but that can happen with anything. That can happen with stories from your own culture. Yes. You, you know? Um, yeah, they can. So, I, you know, I don't think we need story police. I think we need... Uh, I think we can easily miss the point that storytelling is the most human thing we do. Yeah, it is. You know? I agree with that. And, and so it's about us being able to communicate with each other. Right. So to interfere with that communication and all of a sudden to block off that communication where you can't tell that story, I think it's really missing the point. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I like the idea that we can love each other's stories yeah, and think, enjoy each other's stories. Right. And I think it's important too that, that we tell each other's stories be, because it, it, it helps it, us it, understand each other. Yeah, it helps us understand each other's cultures. And also understand how, how much we have in common. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah, I, it's, it's a regrettable question that you know, inevitably comes up. Right, but you know, it's too, and I think it's just too bad that it, that we even have to go into that. But what do you wish that you knew when you started that you know now? Or maybe what tools do you use now that you wish you knew about earlier in your career? And that's hard. That's that's hard to say. I mean, I I do feel that I've grown some, you know, in certain ways. Um, but that's part of the process. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I needed to be ignorant before I could learn. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. You know, I just, you know, I don't regret anything, you know. I just, uh, I, d I do feel like I've grown. I've learned things. And, and that's a valuable process to go through. But it is, you know, it's supposed to be that way. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I wish I'd done is um, keep better notes on my sources when I found stories at yeah, the beginning. Yeah, I guess that would be helpful. Motoko does something that uh, I've, I've never been able to get myself to adopt, but um, immediately after any performance, she writes down exactly what she told in what order. 
And she's been doing that for 20 years. 20, you know, more than 20 years, 25 years. That's... Every single time. She's got books of them with the date. Every story she told. That's really cool. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Has she thought about putting it into a spreadsheet so that she can... <laughs> she, she likes just... to write. She likes writing. Yeah. How would you encourage a young person to follow a career? Like, like the one, one that we're trying to follow. <laughs> I, I don't think I can. Yeah. I would like to see, you know, somebody in the 20s or 30s take it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, I don't think I can speak about a career because I have no idea what's going to be available to them in, t- in 10, 15 years, 20 years. Yeah. So, so I don't think I can speak about a career. I could speak about right now right. if you wanted to build that skill and, that, and ways you could use it right now to make yourself a few bucks and have a good time and to learn some things. But that's all it would be. I, I couldn't talk about a career. Right. Um, and what would those things be that you would... What little gems of wisdom would you give that person? Well, before you before you get into storytelling, know who you want to tell your stories to and why. Mm-hmm. You know, and that'll inform what you do with the stories as you develop them for your own style. I I I I wouldn't want to see. Uh, you know, if if someone wanted to be a reader and just go in, take a book, open it up, read the kids, mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Okay, but know that's what you're doing. Right. You know what I'm saying? If you want to be a storyteller, it's more than this. Oh, yeah. You know? And so, you know, you learn the story, decide what you want to do with the story, and then do it. And then as you do it, decide how you can make it better, you know? Um, so, I, you know, it really comes down to, like I said, decide if you want to tell stories, who do you want to tell them to and why. That comes first. Yeah. And then, then you can make the stories fit that, you know. Um, but if you don't know that, then... I'm going to be spinning wheels. Yeah, what's the point? Yeah. What's the point? You know, just I mean, yeah. tell jokes. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Because that's so much easier. <laughs> they're shorter, and they're, you know. Yeah. Then you can tell them anywhere. It's know? true. It's true. But I, I, I wouldn't want to see somebody, uh, like, I remember uh in San Diego, at one point, they were hiring a lot of young men to come and work in the schools because someone decided that these, you know the kids need males, you know, role models in the schools. But the guys that were taking these jobs, you know, some of them actually cared about kids and wanted to be role models. Sometimes, some of them just needed a way to get a paycheck and didn't care. Right. And you can tell the difference. Oh yeah. You know. Yeah, well, it's, uh, just, it's the same as when you get a teacher that's at the end of their career and they're just putting in the hours. Yeah, you know, you can tell. Yeah. And and you can tell with storytelling too. You know, if somebody thinks, thinks well, you know, I, I'm just not making any money at this, let me try this, you know. Right. That's all well and good, but 
you're not doing anybody a service you know so I think you're doing it for the wrong reasons then as well yeah so so it's it's you know so it's not about a career it's it's about why you want to do it yeah how did you and Motika meet the the thing was we we became friends when she was here as a, 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 a exchange student remember I told told you about how I was uh I would learn a bunch of stories from different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. Well, uh, she was one of the people I would go to oh, back okay. in the late 80s to learn stories from Japan. Like, for example, this school in East Hampton, I went there and told African folk tales one time, and they were all excited. They said, can, you know, they called me the next year, can you do Asian stories? <laughs> I said, fine, yeah. <laughs> right? And uh, so I went to Motoko and learned a bunch of stories, you know. Yeah. Um, now one day, this was really interesting. One day we were doing a a, a program, and uh, this this friend of ours was going to tell a certain Japanese story, and uh, I wanted to go to Motoko to just kind of get some advice about the story and and, and, and she, she she said yeah I, I remember that story and this and you know she was, didn't take it very seriously but she just off the top of her head told the story the best she could remember and told it ten times better than this professional teller was was telling it uh, after working on it <laughs> you wow. know it's it just like you know just kind of matter of factly off the top of her head and I said oh shit and then, <laughs> and and uh, and uh, there was that was one of the the things. And then there was another situation too, where uh, she just you know was was I don't remember what the situation was now, but she she, she was just telling the story just to you know to help us work something. Out. I said you should be telling that story. And uh, at first, you know, she would tell stories to the, when her son was in kindergarten, she would tell stories to, the, to his class, but she, you know, even then she was a little shy about it. And her English was fine, but for some reason she said her English wasn't that good. Um, well, she still says that. Yeah, but that's just, that's a different thing. That's just being Japanese. Oh, okay. But, um, <laughs> but she... Uh, she she really has a a, a gift, so she does. So, she's um, she's a really good storyteller. I just you know at one point I just said you know really after storytelling so we started going out together, and she you know she would tell a story or two and then she put her own set together and then put another set together and you know within a within a year she was off and running with. Wow, that's excellent. Yeah, yeah. that's really cool. And you to work closely together with your stories. Yeah, we always run our stuff by each other and yeah. talk about it and and uh, see if you can get deeper. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And 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 uh, I've I've done a number of rhymes for her now. Uh, well, you saw it. Yeah, I did. So I've I've rhymed quite a few stories for her, and those we always go back and forth about. You know, you know, are we getting to the right? You know. 
or we're hitting the right points or getting to the heart of the story is this really you know like the, the one uh, Urashima was a great story I've always liked that story anyway and that was just a really she was in her mother was dying so she was in Japan that whole summer mm-hmm. and so we had to do it over the phone and through email you know I'd write a piece send it to her this was 2003 I guess um, but it was the summer and uh, so I would you know write us uh, in the night time she would you know when she got through dealing with her mother she she would sit down and read it and we'd talk about it and, uh, we decided time was really the essence of the story it was, you know hmm. about time and uh, it was just a really interesting process going back and forth oh, I bet. trying to make that story work because she had to also think about not just um how to tell each part of the story, but but how she was going to physicalize each part of the story. So each each passage had to have some kind of clear, you know, presence, you know, that she could phys- physicalize. And uh, it's just really fascinating stuff. Yeah, I like yeah, I like what she does. Because I hadn't seen much of her work until Timpanogos. So. Yeah. And I saw a well, bunch that was of the she- thing before she was a storyteller. She was already a brilliant mime, and so um, you know I remember going to see her one-woman show back around like 1990, I think it was, and just just being blown away, just being blown away with incredible grace and and expressiveness and and precision and art, you know. Yeah. Just really incredible. So I was really glad that she let go of that notion of. You know, my language is not because yeah, she had the language. She just yeah, she's she's fabulous. What's your favorite place to be? Home. Yeah. Yeah. Who we? <laughs> yeah. Assuming Motoko. I'm assuming. <laughs> is there a storyteller, either living or dead, that you would like to sit down with? and discuss the art or swap stories with? Or well, swap stories with interest. Or discuss the art. Yeah. Um, there's a poet named Andrew Saki. He died uh, a few years back, quite a few years now. But um, he was, I used to, he used to teach at Hampshire. And sometimes I would get to sit down and talk with him, you know, about about things, you know, stories and writing and and just ideas more than anything else. And that was very good, very good. But he had a real rich understanding of how to make a story and you know what is, you know, how to get. He was a master craftsman with language. Nice. You know, so he he could really just with the fewest amount of words just say so much. I remember one a line from his. Uh, one of his poems that just I never uh, heard anything like it and it just stayed with me they hanged him on a clement morning a black apostrophe to pain jeez wow oh my gosh but Andrew Saki was just a brilliant poet but yeah there's, there's people that I like to talk to about 
but I, you know, I'm very happy with talking to Motoko about yeah. the stories, and we get we get some really good meat out of the stories. It's a good work done. So you, you mentioned um, both in Timpanogos and on the emails that we shared um, animation. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I love to do music. I love to do art. I love to work with kids, you know? Uh-huh. And so, you know, being able to do plays with kids for years was a way to incorporate all that stuff, you know? Right. And this is my next stage of that, being able to incorporate music and art and stories all into one thing, um, is to be able to do animation, is to have the kids' artwork, uh, their voices, their singing, their you know, musicality, all involved in in taking and creating their own version of a story, and encapsulating it into something that they can actually watch again and again if they want to. Yeah. You know, so I just love it. Um, so I'm teaching myself. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm taking online courses and I'm. It's doing YouTube videos and trying them going through and trying making things and trying things out and over the past few years I've gradually been developing the skills and applying it to uh, different projects with kids so mm-hmm. I'll, I'll show you some of these projects but uh, one thing is uh, there's certain softwares that, that are just great just make the stuff so accessible so uh, there's this software I use called Crazy Talk. And Crazy Talk is nice because this is a, a, by a company called Reillusion. Um, it's nice because one of the things I do is I have the kids draw a self-portrait. Mm-hmm. And so they draw the face, face front, just a line for the mouth. They can put lips on it, but the mouth has to be closed and just a line there. And then with Crazy Talk, you mark off certain points that are going to be animated and you can actually record the person's voice and have the drawing say what they just said. Oh, no way. And it's beautiful. So That's um, neat. So like I was working with a group of kids down in Bridgeport and it was an after school program so I only had the kids for, you know, a limited amount of time. Yeah. Uh, So one of the things I had them do was I had them each draw a self-portrait and say what they want to do to help the community when they're older. I never ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because then you're going to hear about money. I'm not interested in money. Right. I'm interested in what you want to do to help others. So, so I ask them, what do you want to do to help the community when you're older? And it could be anything, you know. So one kid said, I want to be a football player and I can teach other kids how to play football. Another kid said, I want to be a doctor and I can heal people. I want to be a police officer and I can protect people. And they just say what you want to do to help the community. And then I just put them together with some music, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, the, the, uh, I, was, I was mentioning with the first and second graders, I'll, I'll have an Anansi story. Then um, we'll make sure that there's enough characters in the store. We write our own version with enough characters as the number of kids in the class and the teacher. The teacher being narrator, and uh, and so everybody draws uh, their self-portrait, and we make that the character in the story, and and uh, 
and uh, record their voices saying the lines and and uh, and I put it together and you know and then software and video software and, and it's just real fun sounds it yeah. I'm gonna have to look that up yeah <laughs> now uh, I had another group with sixth graders and I had them do uh, fables so so each class uh, each group chose a fable and uh, did the voices did the music did the you know the backgrounds and, right. and uh, in some cases um, I can get them to do some of the animation which is really good when you have the time and the school has the computers to do that right. in some cases but inevitably I end up having to kind of finish everything pull everything together because there's just only so many time or so much time that you can get um, I had an interesting thing with a school up in, in Vermont um, I had the first grade and seventh grade collaborate on a, on a video project, right? Nice. Where they each drew a self-portrait and the, they teamed up, one first grader, one seventh graders, to tell a joke together. So, ah. <laughs> so the seventh grader says, you know, uh, uh, why didn't the skeleton cross the road? And the first grader says, because uh, he didn't have any guts. And then, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it was funny, you know. Came, it was fun to put up. So, that sounds good. Um, so yeah, in that case, uh, the seventh graders actually did a lot of the facial animation because the school had to compute the school bought a, a group license for the software. Oh, cool! And taught them how to use it, and, and that that worked out nicely. That's excellent. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I did um, a project at a school where the third graders were doing. Um, Fractured fairy tales, uh-huh. and then I worked. We took all those third grade stories, and we gave them to the fifth graders, and the fifth nice. graders learnt those stories. Nice. And then they performed them for the whole school. Beautiful. And what was unbelievable because the first story comes out, and there's this fifth grader up there, and all the little kids. I'm sitting with the second grade and the third graders, right? And I can hear this kid say. Wow, it's very much like my story. <laughs> no kidding. Right? And then as it got, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it was a two, three minute story. Yeah. But they're like, that's my story. Yeah. And then at the end of the story, I said, this story was com- written by blah, blah, blah. And they're all this, that's you, that's you, that's you. And they all turn around. And then like, the, the next fifth grader came up and started telling a story. And they're like, that's my story. And they're all, you yeah. know, it was just nice. so cool to see these little yeah. kids work. Absolutely. Performed by these older kids. Absolutely. And it was just phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Yeah. I, uh, one of the things I do in collaboration is I have the, the kindergartners will write a group story and then I bring it to the fifth or sixth grade and have them illustrate it. Oh, nice. And then I take it, I have them just do line drawing right. and then take it and make a coloring book out of it. And so every kid gets a oh. coloring book made from the story that they wrote. That's really neat. Yeah, yeah. I like you that. Get a bunch of those. That's cool. Yeah. What lights up your eyes with storytelling? Just that type of thing. Yeah. Just that type of thing. Seeing the kids, uh, you know, being able to enjoy what they created. Yeah. In a unique way. Yeah. So I love that uh, third, third, fifth grade cap collaboration. Yeah, it's something magical yeah. about that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's fabulous. Yeah. So I want to end up this interview, this conversation, um, with a quote or parable that you sense to me 
because I thought it was so mm. cool. And I wondered if you would. That's a that's that's one I use. Uh, there's a story that I tell from Ethiopia, and I like to introduce the story with that proverb. Because the, the story, to, lots of people tell this story. It's a it's um the mother who is not able to communicate with her son, or in some cases it's even been the husband, okay. you know, uh, stepson, or, you know, some people like to use it as a, a good stepmother story, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But the point is they're, they're, they're unable to communicate, and the wise man says, well, you had to bring me three hairs from a lion. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. You know, the lion's whiskers, the tiger's the li- whiskers. Exactly, yeah, tiger's yeah. whiskers. So, yeah. so she has to go through this process, and... Uh, that takes a lot of courage and a lot of, you know, yeah, uh, difficulty. But she, you know, eventually is able to come back with those three whiskers. Uh, you know. um, so, so I introduce it by saying, the child who's crossing the river on his parents' back has no idea how cold the water is. I love that. Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah, I love it. There's so many African. That was another thing that back in the early '70s that I that I discovered that I just really loved was African Proverbs. Yeah, we have. Yeah. The Proverbs on your CD though, they're not all African, are they? Mostly. Oh, they are? Yeah. I need I, to listen. I, I need to think about which Proverbs I used because I, I took from a long list. Right. But, uh, I have to listen to that CD. You know, but sometimes you get crossover like, you know, like like the story, the tiger's whiskers. Yeah. You know, and I think that's, Cambodian, I think, or something like that, but yeah. it's also Ethiopian. Uh, right. Three Hairs of a Lion. So, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes there's crossover, but I think I think they're mostly. I might have picked one from someplace else. I don't rem- actually remember which. I have to listen to it. Yeah. Uh, that that idea though, of clearing the palate. I. Uh, Motoko and I were up in in Maine, way up in. Paris, Maine. I think there was an event going on up at the Celebration Barn or something, and we went out to dinner. They had this. Somebody had put this nice new French restaurant, you know, way up in this out of the way place, and it was good, you know. But one of the things they did was they brought us a course that was delicious, and they came out with these little bowls of sherbet. Oh, really? I said, what's this for? I said, that's to clear the palate for the next, you know, so, wow. cool. so we cleared the palate, had the next course, right? <laughs> I said, I'm going to use that idea. So that was where I got the idea of putting the proverbs in between ah. the stories. I said, clear the palate before the next story. Yeah, because I use my baron to do the same thing, my yeah. drum to do yeah, the same sure. thing. Sure, I just like that idea. Or to wake the people up that have fallen well, asleep. that too. <laughs> that too. <laughs> when I bore my audience. Eshu, it's been a pleasure spending this yeah, time with you. you. Uh, thank you very much for doing that. I really yeah. appreciate it. Taking the time out of your day. And there we have it. I hope you had as good a time as I did listening to Eshu as he shared his experiences and processes. It was wonderful to spend time with him and get to know him a little bit. Please find Eshu's work, including his wonderful album, Dancing Granny, wonderful Anansi story, and also a collaboration between Eshu and Mitch Chakor and, and his family. That CD is available on his website, which is eshu, which is E-S-H-U, dot folktales.net. 
Think about bringing him to your local school. He is an incredible storyteller. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview a certain folk and fairy tale, myths and legends storyteller, send me an email. You can find me and my work on Facebook, Simon Brooks Storyteller, on my website, simonbrooksstoryteller.com, and on Instagram, Simon M. Brooks. Diamond Scree? Yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. A shout-out to Chris Jed for creating and recording and letting me use the wonderful music for my podcast. His band is called Blackpool Mecca. Go check him out. You can help keep this podcast alive by becoming one of my Patreons and paying anything from a dollar for an episode that you enjoyed to a regular monthly subscription. In return, you will get extras, early release, and exclusive content of my work. That's at www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. If you cannot do that, then help me out by doing something you can do. I would love it if you were to leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you found this episode. It helps not just me, but others to find and enjoy this podcast. Thanks again for being here with me. I know that there are a lot of other places you could be, and I appreciate it. Until next time, be healthy, be happy, and share the stories you love. Cheers. Simon out. <laughs>